Welcome back to the program. Perhaps part of what plagues us when we think about most issues today is that we see them in a very myopic way. The world is a more and more complex place, and therefore we tend to do the opposite of what we really should do. We tend to silo information or categories or problems. We don't see the connection, and therefore we get frustrated because we can't seem to solve the problems. Environmental issues are no different. My guest, longtime environmental activist James Gus Speth, believes that when we talk about environmentalism, it's more than just the air or the water or the earth, that there is a holistic approach we need to take that is essential if we want to solve anything. He writes about it in his new memoir, Angels by the River. James Gus Speth is the former dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He's the founder and president of the World Resources Institute and co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Fund. He currently teaches at Vermont Law School and is a senior fellow at the Democracy Collaborative. It is my pleasure to welcome Gus Speth back to this program to talk about Angels by the River. Gus, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Good good morning to you. Great to have you here. I want to talk about this idea that when we think of environmentalism, we tend to silo problems. We'll think of water issues or, or air issues or depending whatever the movement of the day or energy issues we don't often make the connection between all of these things. Well, let's go back, uh, uh, unfortunately, 44 years to the first Earth Day in 1970. And let's fast forward through that period. We've made tremendous progress. But we find, uh, on balance, that we're losing the planet. Uh, we're winning victories and, and losing the overall planet and are, are consigning our, our children and grandchildren to a, a really depleted and, and unstable uh, world. Um, so I think it's time to reassess, and we have to ask again, what's an environmental issue? And as you say, yes, it's air pollution, water pollution, those are the traditional issues. But what if you answer the question by saying, you know, a real environmental issue is, is whatever determines the health of the environment, is whatever determines uh, environmental outcomes. It's whatever determines our prospects of success in dealing with environmental problems. And once you frame it that way, then the answer becomes, well, it's our failing politics. It's our failing democracy. It's this is creeping corporatocracy and, and plutocracy that's taking over our politics and this ascendancy of money power over people power. That's certainly an environmental issue. It's a huge determinant of what, whether we are able to succeed and similarly um, our values right I mean if we continue with these uh, you know severely materialistic uh, individualistic people you know immediate immediacy um, uh, anthropocentrism uh, you know we we will uh, not be able to do the right things uh, on on environment and and take our social justice issues I mean, we live now in a country where half the people, uh, families, are living paycheck to paycheck, where like 40% of the families are low-income families with, with incomes no more than 150% of the poverty level, uh, bottom falling out of the middle class, uh, poverty uh, at an all-time high, uh, inequality uh, run rampant, and, and people are scared. Uh, people are easily uh, scared by claims, oh, this, that, that policy is going to hurt the economy, that's going to raise prices, it's going to cost jobs. And those are all things that Senator McConnell said in opposition to 
Obama's very modest proposals to deal with the climate issue. And, uh, and so we need to deal with these other issues, our, our, our own values, our, our consumerism, uh, the, uh, our politics, uh, our, the, the in social injustice in the country, if, 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 over, if we're really going to succeed environmentally. On the other hand, there is a sense of it being a little bit overwhelming, even more than a little bit, when we can't even address the simple things, when we have still have battles over clean air and clean water and, and the science around climate change, we can't even address those. It's hard to imagine addressing it in the larger context. Well, I think we have to expand our imagination a bit uh, because we know that what we've been doing uh, can be helpful, but, uh, but it, isn't, it isn't succeeding in the big picture. Uh, we've been trying to do something about the climate issue literally for over 30 years, uh, and um, and we're losing, and we're losing biodiversity, and we're losing uh, a host of other environmental things. So, so more of the same, yes, we need to keep doing more of the same, and the mainline environmental groups need to keep doing uh, the things that they do to try to make progress within the current system. But at the same time, we've got to begin to invest in inventing a new system. Uh, we've got to begin to invest in deeper change that goes at the root causes of these, of these environmental and social and political problems. And, you know, there are a lot of things that are hopeful in that regard. It's not, uh, uh, it's not a veil of tears. Uh, there are a lot of things going on in, uh, in different communities around that country to, 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 to develop a new type of uh, corporation, to, uh, to, to uh, localize food production, to shift to safer and more uh, organic production and uh, to downshift out of uh, consumerism. Um, there are a lot of good changes uh, being, being made in, in, uh, in our country right now. And we see people organizing and, and, and marching and, and doing things that, uh, you know, that badly need uh, doing. We need protests. We need the Ferguson Rising. We, we need the 400,000 people marching in, uh, in New York uh, uh, the other day on, on the climate issue. So the, I think we're seeing the beginnings of, uh, of a movement for deeper change. And I'm associated with something called the New Economy Coalition, which is now a coalition of over 130 groups around the country that are all committed to uh, you know, not just incremental reform, but transformative change. Uh, and, and dealing with the deeper issues that I uh, enumerated earlier. So, yeah, it's, it's rough out there. If you just look at Washington and say, you know, that's the world we've got, uh, it can be pretty discouraging. But if you take a broader, broader uh, horizon, you, you see a lot of great things going on, and you see the seeds of, of real change being planted uh, today. Doesn't the change, though, in order to be fundamental and long-lasting and be able to scale, doesn't there have to be a political component to that change? Well, I think there has to be a political component, and there has to be a value component. Uh, you know, we can make uh, changes. Uh, so, you know, we need uh, to get together as a country uh, on a on an agenda of pro-democracy political reforms. You know, we need to secure the vote for people. Uh, we need to uh, get beyond partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. Uh, we need to have ethical rules that say that if you're on a legislative committee 
that regulates a certain industry, say banking, uh, you cannot take money uh, from that industry. Just as a judge can't take money from a, a party before him or her. Uh, you know, we can develop an agenda of political reform, uh, public financing of elections, uh, and uh, and even constitutional amendment changes, which there's a lot of support for. Uh, and I think California has uh, joined with other states in in, in a proposal uh, to move beyond the um, uh, electoral college formulation uh, and and have popular vote winning the presidency. Uh, there's lots of changes that we can come together as a country to make that will, you know, save our uh, save our democracy really. Uh, and um, so, yes, we need those political changes that they and we need to. Uh, uh, I mean, that's wonderful that California can do great things because it is a great state, and you the climate policies and things like that are are, are extremely important. But we we do need action at the national level as well. And we're not going to get it with the politics we have today. In many ways, though, the politics is used as as a defense that that the current system, the current democratic system, the current economic system is really used as a justification in itself for the status quo. Well, it is. I, uh, I in, in the memoir that you mentioned, They Moved by the River, I... Uh, uh, one thing I do, having grown up in the South and, and uh, you know, in the 50s, really, and... Uh, uh, I sort of trace the rise of uh, American uh, conservatism uh, of a, a rather extreme form, uh, this anti-government, uh, anti-tax, anti-regulation uh, ideology that's so prominent today. Uh, you know, you can trace a lot of this back to the to to the South and and my home region and the, the shift uh, uh, into the South. Uh, uh, you know, the total Republican takeover uh, of the South. We now have basically the whole solid South with Republican senators and governors uh, for the first time. Uh, and, um, and, and, and you know, this has injected a, uh, a kind of virulent um, strain of, uh, of anti-government uh, ideology uh, in, in, into the picture. And, uh, but it's, um, it, 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 I, I tell in the book uh, a, a number of stories uh, about those types of issues and, uh, and about our roots in the civil rights issue, really, uh, in, in, in the environmental area, uh, how we really used the civil rights movement as a model in the 70s uh, for the environmental movement. Talk a little bit about that nexus between the civil rights movement and the environmental movement, what you've seen historically in in the 60s and 70s and even into the early 80s, and what, if anything, you're seeing today with respect to that nexus. Well, it's an interesting story, and I try to try to tell it in the, in the book. The, um, we were, you know, basically those of us who caught the wave, so to speak, of modern environmentalism, let's date it around 1970, uh, we had lived through the 60s, right? We had, uh, we had seen uh, what uh, civil rights litigation could do, what civil rights protests could do, what civil rights legislation uh, could do, and, uh, and we were inspired by that to do these things uh, uh, for the environment. And in those days, it, it meant getting issues into the national 
limelight, getting issues into national attention and, and getting national action. And so that's what we did uh, with the environmental movement. And and I um, actually had the idea of creating a public interest law firm for the environment uh, after reading a story about the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And so we were highly motivated in those late 60s and, and early 70s uh, by the success of the civil rights movement. And uh, and, and I think the uh, the tragedy then, that, uh, in a way, was that we didn't, uh, in effect, uh, form a partnership with the civil rights movement. And for the longest time, the environmental movement was mostly white and middle class, let's face it. Uh, and... Uh, and 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 uh, but to bring it up to date, what we're seeing now is this concept of environmental justice and climate justice uh, moving back to 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 the center of, of the concern, and uh, and you have uh, you know you you have in in this uh, march that I mentioned in New York it was ostensibly about climate, but it really dealt with all the fossil fuel uh, insults. Uh, there were uh, gender issues uh, uh, prominently f- put forward in that march. There were racial justice issues. Uh, there were policing issues that were in that march. There was. Uh, it really brought a broad cross section and a very diverse cross section of America uh, together, uh, 400,000 strong, and it was it was very powerful uh, to see. So I think we're seeing the emergence of. Uh, uh, of partnerships now and and, uh, and a stronger sense of unity and a lot of it is coming from young people young people are deeply concerned about the environment they're protesting uh, Ferguson and, and similar incidents uh, they're protesting uh, climate uh, and protesting the jobs problem and uh, and our economic failures and I, I'm very hopeful that the day will come when we will see a more explicit, a more overt uh, confluence, a movement of movements uh, coming together to, that uh, does offer real, real hope for, for deeper change. To what extent is money an important part of that, and where would that money come from to keep these movements alive? Well, that's a very good question. There are, of course, uh, progressive funding sources that uh, they have uh, surfaced in, uh, you know, in, in Democratic uh, presidential elections and. Uh, and there are progressive uh, foundations that we we hope to uh, that we hope will support uh, these initiatives. I, I would say this: it's uh, when I had a hand in starting the Natural Resources Defense Council in 1970, and then the World Resources Institute in 1980. Uh, we beat a path to America's major foundations, and we received generous grants to start those institutions. Um, it's harder today. Uh, it's harder uh, to uh, to find the funds to to support what what we are calling the new economy movement, the movement that does really try to deal with these deeper underlying uh, drivers and to and to promote uh, deeper systemic changes. It, it, uh, it it's uh, it's new and a, and a number of foundations haven't uh, gravitated uh, to it yet, uh, but I'm I'm hopeful that that is changing that both individuals and and, and some of our foundations will, will embrace this uh, opportunity to really finally solve some of our problems. But one thing it's going to require 
is progressives to come together, to come out of their silos that you mentioned initially, uh-huh. uh, and to form, uh, you know, a more cohesive uh, force uh, with a common agenda and, and common advocacy. Part of the issue, as, as I was talking about in the introduction, is the complexity of everything today and the, the impact it has. Rather, it, it's counterintuitive in many ways, rather than the complexity encouraging people to look at it in, the more, in a more holistic way. There is this tendency within the complexity to want to just solve individual pieces. Well, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, and that's one reason for the siloing that we have both mentioned, these segmenting of, of progressive causes, for example. Uh, you, know, I, I, you can talk to environmentalists about um, the, the need for, uh, for political reform, and, and they will agree that that's really essential. But they, they are you know, held back in a way by their sense that they don't have the competence and the knowledge and the contacts uh, to work in that area, that that's somebody else's job, and we have to defer. And and I, and I think that's that's very insidious because uh, you know we we need to find ways to uh, to bridge over these issues and to and to recognize the connectivity and all and the interactions of uh, of these various issues. If people in the country had more confidence that somebody was looking after them, so to speak, economically. That that uh, you know that they were really support the government was trying to do things to create uh, good jobs, and and not just ratchet up uh, GDP, which doesn't help too much, uh, you know, and, and and we were you know dealing with our, our social issues and our poverty and other things. I, I think you know people would then uh, find the, uh, uh, the the ability, the wherewithal to to be uh, interested in, in the environment that their future depends on, the children depend on. When you started out in the environmental movement all those many years ago, and you write about a lot of this in your memoir, Angels by the River, could you have imagined what it would come to today that it would involve all these other areas that we're talking about? Well, it's interesting. There was a time when people saw that uh, it would involve these other areas. And some of the early environmental writings, one, one thinks of... Uh, uh, your Californian uh, Paul Ehrlich at, at Stanford and his his work and uh, Barry Commoner and his best-selling book The Closing Circle and and uh, Limits to Growth uh, was an international bestseller over a million copies. It was in the early uh, late sixties and early seventies. There was a lot of deep you know thinking about what it really was going to take, um, and those ideas kind of got dropped by the wayside. And, and I tried to explain in this memoir why I, I think that happened. Uh, you know, we got uh, uh, you know we got opportunities to do things, uh, really important things, uh, inside the Beltway, so to speak. And we were drawn into into the system by the opportunities that were opened up by this new federal legislation, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and, and these these ideas about deeper change. Uh, you know, got you know, got sort of shunted to the side and put on the shelf, and we need to take them back off the shelf now, uh, and um, and and think about uh, you know the the kind of things that people were writing about um, uh, in, in the uh, you know in, in around 1970. 
Talk a little bit about what you hear from young people. You were, as as I mentioned in the introduction, the dean at the Yale School of Forestry and certainly spent a lot of time in that period of your life around young people. Talk a little bit about what you're hearing today about what their concerns are. Well, I think um, I think you, you have a mix, of course. Uh, in, in, in some ways, um, uh, you know, if you look at some of the trend pol- polling on trends in, among young people entering colleges, you find that the kind of altruistic values are are, uh, are down, and uh, and the concerned about jobs and, and economic uh, security are up. Uh, it's kind of a reflection of the hard times that that, that we have. Uh, on the other hand, um, the young people I've seen uh, really get the climate issue. Uh, they 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 think that this um, you know it's widespread view among young people that the that the climate issue uh, denial uh, and skepticism is really uh, 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 something that uh, their you know grandfathers uh, are clinging to. Uh, and they want to see us get on with action, and um, and I, I think they they want meaningful jobs, uh, not just any job, not just try to do something, uh, uh, you know, make make some money so you can maybe do some good with it and support your family. I think people really would like to more, perhaps more than anything, is to have meaningful work, uh, jobs that were fulfilling and and that. Uh, so we need to, and of course this you know, requires education. They're deeply concerned about education, uh, the cost of education, the student debt uh, problems, uh, and um, you know, we've got to find ways to, uh, to to provide high quality education at, at you know, affordable uh, prices uh, in our country, uh, and some provide it for free. Uh, and then you know we have the problem of black youth. And, uh, and and what these people are subjected to. Uh, I spent you know, three days in central cell block of the D.C. jail having protested on the Keystone XL pipeline in front of the White House, <laughs> and I knew we were going to walk out of there. And the doors were going to open, and uh, we would be free people uh, and, and with no records or problems uh, from the law uh, as a result of our little civil disobedience. But in the process... As we were in these holding cells and, 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 and bouncing around in the courthouse system and the jail system, we saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young black men who were, you know, going to be bouncing in that system and trapped in it and in and out of it uh, uh, with records and it's you know, just really very, very sad uh, what we're doing with the over-criminalization uh, and the infliction of a lot of these burdens uh, and discriminations uh, on our black communities. We've talked about this in terms of the proactive things that need to be done, certainly. Talk about it in terms of, of really what the opposition is, because this isn't just a case of these things needing to be done and put the forces and the money together to do them. The pushback to it, the, the powerful forces that are against the kind of things that you've been talking about are indeed formidable. Oh, yes. And I think there are several uh, sources, several points of origin. Um, one is, uh, you know, there's just huge economic power uh, that, that is easily translated into um, uh, 
uh, into into political power. Uh, you know, the, the current estimates are that somewhere between two thirds and eighty percent of the known fossil fuel reserves are going to have to stay in the ground uh, if we're going to do the right thing uh, for the climate of our of our grandchildren. And uh, you know, think of the the trillions of dollars of uh, of economic uh, loss, so to speak, on the books of of these companies. So I think our fossil fuel companies, they are science-based companies. They are technology-based companies. The leaders of these companies are smart. They know that this climate issue is real, and they know that they are behind it. And But they also have refused to do anything about it, and they're fighting the rest of us who want to. So it's a deeply ethical you know, failure, deeply moral failure on the part of uh, of, of the leaders and and uh, and the and the people who are making money out of it, and that's why this divestment movement is is so important, uh, I think. Uh, so you have this uh, the divestment from from fossil fuels. So you have this um, this uh, this economic uh, force uh, pushing for the status quo and and indeed expanding uh, fossil fuels into more and more extreme energy. You also have a ideological. Uh, a powerful ideological block in the country that uh, that that uh, in, in in the words of the famous Grover Norquist, we want to shrink government so small that we can drown it in a bathtub. And, uh, and he was the leader of the conservatives in in Washington, and um, uh, and we um, we these people understand. Uh, that once you validate environmental concerns, once you validate climate concerns, it's going to require uh, important government action, a lot of regulation, uh, carbon taxes, um, and uh, you know, incompetence uh, in government and the federal government in particular. Uh, you know, you're big enough in California to have confidence in, in the state government and have your own climate plan, but uh, you know, we need a national one, and we need national confidence. And and, and this ideological uh, opposition is is very powerful uh, because once they acknowledge the the reality of the climate issue, then they know uh, that government is going to have to step up to the plate, and, and they're dead set against that. Uh, so uh, I I think that's um, those are you know pieces of the opposition that we uh, that we confront. James Gus Speth, his book is Angels by the River, a memoir. Gus, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it, it, it's my pleasure, Jeff, and I wish you all the best. You as well. Thank you so much. We'll take a break. I'll be right hey. back.